Let's start with a question. How would you feel if someone described you as a religious person? I'll even make it a multiple choice. A, glad. B, uncomfortable. C, annoyed. D, sad. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but, but try to answer it honestly in your head. How would you feel? Now, we actually put that question out on social media this week, and, and for what it's worth, here's how people responded. None were sad. About 60% were glad. And about 40% were either uncomfortable or annoyed. Which is interesting when you figure that the people who responded are following a church on Facebook and Twitter. Now, full disclosure, I was one of the uncomfortable ones. Which feels a little weird since I make my living being religious. I, I don't think I'd mind being described as spiritual or God-fearing or or even church-going. So, so why do I, why do a good percentage of us feel uncomfortable being described as religious? Well, maybe it's because of all the other words that come to mind when you think of a religious person. Words like stuffy, boring, puritanical, self-righteous. I mean, we, we don't want to be any of those things. Uh, maybe it's because we hear so much about bad religion these days. Abuse, scandals, extremism, politicization. And we don't want to be associated with all of that either. And maybe it's because religious sounds too sterile or, or institutional to describe the good and beautiful thing that's happened to us. In any event, it's not really a hypothetical question. Because if you've intentionally arranged your day to spend an hour watching or attending a church service, instead of a thousand other things you might be watching or doing right now, then I hate to break it to you, but your friends would probably describe you as religious. And there are plenty of reasons to feel okay about that. But if it bothers you, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, annoyed, or sad, let me offer you some encouraging words. Jesus might have felt the same way. In fact, I think Jesus would add one more option to our multiple choice question. E, mad. Because as we're about to discover, Jesus was pretty upset with religion as it was being practiced in his day. So upset, in fact, that he was prepared to tear the whole thing down. Now, now we're, we're in week three of a series we're calling Changemaker. As we make our way toward Easter, we're walking through the events of what we call Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' earthly life, a week that changed everything. And week by week, we're discovering the changes that Jesus wants to make in our lives and, and in the world, and how we can join him in bringing about those changes. So far, we've learned that Jesus changed the way we think about leadership. By, by washing his disciples' feet on Thursday evening of that week, he declared a shift from status 
to service when it comes to leading people and causes. Last week, we learned that that Jesus changed the way we think about power. Humbly riding into town on Palm Sunday on the back of a pint-sized donkey, changing the way change happens from powering up to stooping down. Now, a quick qualifier on that last point. After one of the services last week, someone grabbed me in the lobby, pulled open their coat, and showed me their t-shirt from Kids Week here a couple of summers ago. Power up, it said. So, just to be clear, I was referring to earthly power, not Holy Spirit power, which I believe in, and which we'll actually get to later in the series. Uh, But this week, as we continue our journey through Holy Week, we come to Monday, where Jesus is going to change the way we think about religion. We're going to be considering the, the kinds of changes Jesus might want to make to our lives and to our church. And if you were impressed with the way Jesus rode into town last week, wait till you see the way he shows up at church today. Uh, Let's read the story and then come back and take a closer look. Matthew tells us, The next day, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Another full disclosure, I thought about subtitling this sermon, Just Another Manic Monday, (laughs) but thought that might be going over the top when it comes to 80s music. But if if you were with us last week, or if you know the story of Palm Sunday, (laughs) you're likely asking, what's going on here? Yesterday, Jesus came riding into town humbly and gently, waving to the crowd like the Queen Mother. Today, he comes into the temple like gangbusters, knocking over tables and chasing people out of the building. What's going on? What's gotten into Jesus? That's a good question, but first, let's point out what's not going on. First, Jesus is not getting violent. Yes, he radically rearranges the furniture and sends feathers flying in every direction. But to borrow a line from movie trailers, no animals were harmed in the filming of this scene. No humans either. Jesus' actions were dramatic and physical, but they were not violent. Secondly, Jesus is not losing his temper. Now, at first glance, it it looks like Jesus lost his cool when he walked in that day and saw all that was going on. 
uh, that after three years of playing nice, he just couldn't take it anymore and blew his stack. But that's not what's happening here. I mean, Jesus is mad, that's for sure. But, but not in the way we typically get mad. This, this wasn't an impulsive reaction by Jesus. He wasn't taken by surprise at what he found in the temple that day. In fact, if, if we flip over to Mark's account, we find out that, that what happened that day was actually premeditated on Jesus' part. Listen to what Mark adds to the end of the Palm Sunday story. He tells us that after the parade, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So, Jesus already knew what was going on in the temple. He'd seen the whole thing the day before, and he had the whole night to think about what he was going to say and do the next day. So, so Jesus didn't lose his temper that day. This was a deliberate action. It was a, a prophetic action, like Isaiah walking half-naked and barefoot for three years, or Jeremiah smashing clay pots at the end of his sermon. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and what he was doing was deconstructing the religious life of the people. Now, if, if you spend time in church circles, you've probably heard the word deconstruction. It's a word that stirs up a variety of reactions. Some of us might be confused by it, or bothered by it, or tired of it. But quite a few of us, it turns out, probably resonate with it. Now, now technically, deconstruction is an academic term. It comes out of the field of literary criticism. It describes uh, taking apart an author's writing word by word to determine exactly what's being said and why and how accurate or valid it is. In the church world, people are using the word to describe what I'll call a critical re-examination of long-held beliefs, practices, and structures. See, in our increasingly secular society, and, and after experiencing some of the bad religion we spoke about earlier, some Christians, younger Christians in particular, are taking apart the faith they were raised with and trying to decide what, what can be held on to and what needs to be let go of. Now, for, for obvious reasons, it, it's, it's an uncomfortable and, and controversial endeavor. But sometimes it needs to happen. And it turns out that Monday of Jesus' final week of earthly ministry was just such a time. Jesus is physically and prophetically deconstructing the religious life of the nation because so much of it was bad. So, however you might feel about the deconstructing word, let's see what bothered Jesus at the temple that day and consider what might happen if he were to visit a church like ours 
today. But you better hold on to the furniture because Jesus is going to uncover three characteristics of bad religion. First, bad religion substitutes religious activity for encountering God. Substitutes religious activity for encountering God. When Jesus arrived at the temple that day, he found a lot of religious activity going on. People changing their money into temple currency so they could put it in the offering plate. Buying and selling animals so they could offer sacrifices. Now, now neither of those things were inherently bad. They've been going on for a long time. And, and they, were, they were practical necessities for people who wanted to participate in worship. The problem wasn't that those activities weren't supposed to be happening. It's that they weren't supposed to be happening in the temple. They were supposed to be taken care of outside the temple, in the marketplace, so that when people stepped into the temple, they could actually encounter God in prayer, in the giving of their offerings, in hearing the scripture, in acts of repentance and thanksgiving. But it was more convenient for both the merchants and the worshipers to move the whole operation into the temple courts. So they did. And over time, the focus of activity in the temple was no longer on experiencing God's presence, but simply going through the motions of religious rituals. And that made Jesus mad. So mad that he put a stop to it, turning over the tables and driving everyone out into the marketplace where they were supposed to be. And to be sure there was no mistaking the message behind his madness, Jesus calls out the words of the prophet Isaiah, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Bad religion substitutes religious activity for encountering God. I read a book on sabbatical called Faith Formation in a Secular Age by Andrew Root. Now, I don't know if Root would describe himself as a deconstructionist, but, but his concern is that the contemporary church's obsession with attendance and activity with full sanctuaries and full calendars and high-energy services and 24-7 engagement has overshadowed our need for genuine encounters with a living God. We've settled for smoke machines and light cannons instead of spirit and truth. Now, as a pastor who who likes a, a room full of engaged people enthusiastically connecting with God and each other, I don't think it has to be an either-or proposition. But Andrew Root is sounding a warning. Participation doesn't always lead to transformation. In other words, you can sing a song in church without even thinking about God while you sing, let alone honoring God in your heart. You, you can sit in a living room or a Zoom room with a group of people studying the Bible 
without ever allowing what you read to actually convict you or challenge you or change you. The goal of any religious activity is to lead us into life-changing encounters with a God who wants to speak to us and heal us and help us and form us into the people he made us to be. So, so any religious activity or structure that's not helping people do that may not be worth holding on to. Well, secondly, bad religion values insiders more than outsiders. Uh, the problem with all that activity in the temple courts wasn't just that it was distracting people from encountering God. It's that it was actually preventing people who needed it most from getting anywhere near God. See, all this activity was taking place in what was called the court of the Gentiles. This was the, the wide open space around the holy place. It was the only place in the temple that God-fearers, what we might call seekers, the only place they were able to gather. It was also the only place that was accessible to, to those who might be considered unclean due to some affliction or some disfigurement. And it was likely the only space that children were allowed. So with all that religious activity going on in the court of the Gentiles, the people who most needed to connect with God, spiritual seekers, the infirm, the unclean, and children, couldn't get anywhere near God's presence. These religious people and their leaders had become gatekeepers instead of door holders. They were restricting people's access instead of welcoming them in. And it made Jesus mad. So mad that he cleared the place out. And as he did, he, he reminded people that, 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 that his house wasn't just a house of prayer for Israel. It was for everyone. Mark actually includes the whole quotation from Isaiah. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's just one line from an entire speech in which Isaiah declares God's concern for foreigners and for the disfigured. And look what happens next. Matthew tells us, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. No sooner does Jesus clear out that sacred space than it fills up again with people who need help and healing, who are seeking God, and Jesus ministers to every one of them. Now, you'd think the religious leaders would be excited about that. Not so much. Let, let, let's keep reading. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, they were indignant. So here you have wonders taking place, sick people being healed, 
foreigners finding their way to faith, children having the time of their lives praising God. And the leaders are upset about it. Why? Well, because they weren't comfortable with all those sick and needy people in, in their sacred spaces getting in the way, getting carried away, messing with the way things were normally done. Now, now understand, Jesus wasn't trying to limit or restrict the regular worshipers in any way. He wanted them to worship fully and freely, to be healed and helped. He just wanted outsiders to have the same opportunity, especially since they were the ones who likely needed it the most. So bad religion values insiders more than outsiders. This is another one of the concerns raised by, by those who are deconstructing church as we've known it. I mean, they know that church works great for church people, people who know the routines and the rituals, who feel comfortable in religious spaces. But, but shouldn't sacred space be just as accessible for people who don't know how it works, who aren't familiar with the music or the jargon, who may not look or live or believe like, like the people who are already there? And younger generations in particular want to know if their LGBTQ friends will feel loved and safe in the church. If their friends of color will feel like they belong and are heard. Young adults who grew up in the church, maybe in this church, want to know if their doubts and struggles and questions will be welcomed and respected and explored intelligently and graciously. So understand, it's not, it's not a matter of abandoning those forms of worship or the spiritual depth that, that are so important to, to those of us who've belonged for a long time. Those things need to be valued. Those people need to be valued. It's just about intentionally holding space for those who are still on the way, who are wondering if they still belong or if they want to belong. Well, thirdly, Bad religion talks about faith without actually living that faith. I'm thinking about something uh, Jesus said as he knocked over the tables and shooed away the animals. You are making my house a den of robbers, he said. Now, for a long time, I assumed that Jesus was talking about the money changers and merchants who were ripping off the pilgrims who came to worship, charging exorbitant amounts to change their money or to purchase animals for sacrifice. But it turns out that's not really the case. I mean, for one thing, there's no evidence that, that price gouging was going on. And more importantly, it's not what Jesus is calling attention to when he quotes the prophet Jeremiah. You see, when we go back and, and, and read the context in which Jeremiah first spoke these words, this is what we read. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? 
Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. You see, when you stop and think about that expression, a den of robbers, you begin to understand what Jesus was talking about and why he was so upset. A robber's den isn't the place where robbers commit their crimes. It's the place they run to after they've committed their crimes. It's their hideout, a place where they feel protected and unseen. And, and that's what Jesus is accusing these religious people of doing, treating the temple as a hideout where they can pretend to be something they're not. Jesus wasn't upset about the money changers and, and the few pennies they may have been making. He was upset about the worshipers and the leaders who all week long were living horribly, disrespecting God, doing terrible things to each other and to themselves, and then would, would come into the temple, offer up a prayer and a sacrifice, and go home looking and feeling fine like upstanding religious people, when in fact, they were hypocrites. They talked a good faith, but they weren't living a good faith. And that's, that kind of thing has younger and older people deconstructing their faith. When they see Christians behaving badly, not loving their neighbors, not doing justice and loving mercy, not seeking the truth. It causes them to wonder if the Christian faith is really good and if they want to be part of it. I mean, we all know nothing makes people madder than religious hypocrisy. And it made Jesus mad too. So mad that he deconstructed the whole thing. So, what are we learning here about Jesus the change maker on this manic Monday? Well, how about this? Jesus wants to change anything that's keeping us or others from discovering life with God. Jesus wants to change anything that's keeping us and others from discovering life with God. You see, that's what Jesus was angry about. Not only were his people settling for religious activity instead of relating with God, they were making it harder for other people to find their way to a relationship with God. Their religious practices and structures, their insider ways, their hypocrisy, had become barriers that were keeping people from finding and experiencing the goodness of life with God. So on that second day of the final week of his life, Jesus made clear in words and actions that he had come to tear those barriers down, to clear the way so that anyone and everyone could find their way to life with God. And he did it, 
not only by deconstructing the religious life of the temple, but by reconstructing it around himself. In fact, on another occasion, very similar to this one, Jesus promised that, that if the temple was destroyed, he would rebuild it again in three days. And turns out, that's exactly what he did. On Friday of that week, he offered up himself as the perfect and final sacrifice, putting an end to all that religious activity that was doing more harm than good. And when he died, the scripture tells us, the veil in the temple was torn in two, opening the way for anyone and everyone to find their way to God. And by the time Jesus rose on the third day, the religious landscape had been changed forever. From gatekeeping to gate crashing. That's the change Jesus made to the religious life of the nation. And that's the change he wants to make to our lives and to our church. He wants to change anything that's keeping us or others from discovering life with God. So let me, let, let me take a moment to, to talk to those of us who've, who've been around the church a long time, people like me. We may struggle with the deconstruction word. It, it can sound overly negative and critical. It feels threatening to, to a faith that is real and good to us, to traditions and structures that, that have provided a spiritual home for us for a long time. We're fearful of, of where it might lead some of our friends in the faith and, 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 and the young people in our lives. But, but Jesus' actions that day teach us that we don't have to be afraid of deconstruction. Sometimes it's necessary and helpful. And in the providence of God, it can lead to a reconstruction that's good for our faith and good for the world. It, it's happened many times since that dust up in the temple. The Protestant Reformation in the 1500s the Great Awakenings of the 17 and 1800s, the, the evangelical movement of the 1940s and 50s, the, a movement that, that gave birth to this very church. These were all unsettling but formative times, times that led to the dawn of something new and good. Now, in case you hadn't noticed, COVID-19 has forced deconstruction on us. I mean, talk about turning over tables. For, for the better part of a year, it completely shut down church as we've known it. And it's been unsettling, and it's been uncomfortable. We, we've had to rearrange and re-examine everything we've been doing. But along the way, 
we've, we've learned some new ways of doing things. New ways of connecting with each other. Of, of reaching new people. Of, of, of serving our communities. I, I honestly think we're praying more and, and with greater intensity. We've been reminded that, that the church is bigger and better than our buildings and our programs. It's a community of people discovering life with God for the good of the world. And so as we put it all back together now, we have a chance to discern what's worth holding on to and what we might need to let go of. On my sabbatical, I, I had a chance to talk with some of the most effective church leaders I know. And, and two things struck me in those conversations. First is that virtually all of them are going through the same things we are going through. As we slowly try to work our way back after COVID and struggle to get people back into the, the, the church and our buildings and our activities. But the second thing I noticed is that as hard as all this has been, everyone agrees that God is still on the move still building his church and forming his people to bless the world in new and needed ways. There's, there's hopefulness about the future and about what's next. So we don't have to be afraid of deconstruction. And then let me speak for a moment to those of us who are resonating with that word, who might find ourselves re-examining faith or church or the whole thing. You don't have to be afraid of it either. You don't have to be afraid to bring it up around here. And you don't have to be afraid to lean into it. Uh, Jesus is telling us, the Holy Week is telling us that there's something good and true and beautiful to be found on the other side of deconstruction. And having been through it a couple of times myself over the years, I can tell you this, just stick with Jesus. If he's upsetting tables and clearing some things out of the way, it's because he wants to fill that space with something better. Just stay close enough, hang around long enough to see it through to the other side. And this is a good time to mention that, that that's the vision behind the gathering. The gathering is a, a new community that we're offering on, on Sunday evenings at our Wilmington campus. Uh, we're trying to create some space for God to do something new. So you'll, you'll still find worship and prayer and teaching. And often it will be on the same themes we're exploring on Sunday mornings. But you'll hear some younger voices and some different voices. You'll find some new approaches to encountering God and one another. It happens at 5 p.m. on the first three Sundays of every month. And everyone's welcome. Jesus wants to change anything that's keeping us or others from discovering life with God. Now, we've been talking a lot about the church today. But what might Jesus want to change 
in your life? Are there some familiar tables he wants to turn upside down? Are there some attitudes and actions that are keeping you or the people around you from fully experiencing life with God? Are you willing to let Jesus come in like gangbusters and rearrange the furniture a bit? You don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to be afraid of it. Because remember what happened after Jesus had upended all the tables and cleared the place out? People flooded back into that space, seeking people, hurting people, young people. Healing happened in that space. Worship happened. Children sang praises at the top of their lungs. And as Jesus watched it all unfold, he said in so many words, now that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> May it be so, Lord, in our hearts and in our church. May we never settle for anything less than genuine encounters with you. May those who are on their way here feel just as welcome as those who are already here. And may we be people who actually live our faith and love our neighbors instead of just coming to church to talk about it. If you'd like to talk more about anything we've talked about today, just reach out to me, Brian with a Y at grace.org. And if you'd like to think a little bit more about what happened at the temple that day, check out our still meditation. It'll be posted tomorrow at grace.org slash Easter.